Welcome, welcome everybody in to the deep end. My name is Tim, the host of the deep end every Tuesday night. And tonight is a very special night because we are live with you on the screen. I am excited about this. Now we have we have worked hard to set this up. Michael, my producer, right behind the camera right over here. Uh, he can't wave to you, but I will wave to him. Good job, Michael, because he's set up this thing so that we can actually have your chats on the screen. Now this is very important that you understand. You can't just go to any of our outlets. I know we are streaming across Facebook channels and YouTube channels and Twitch and uh, uh, all kinds of channels. Look, you got to go to one place, okay? You got to go one place, and I'm going to put it up on the screen here for you. Um, you got to go to youtube.com slash the deep end TV. YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. That is the only, uh, that's the only place where you can log on and chat along with us. That's the only place. Now, you can also send your questions to our uh, phone number, which is right here. I'll put it on the screen as well. 508-316-9333. You can also email them to ask at the deep end.tv. Now those are if you want to be anonymous. So if you want to be anonymous, you don't want to put your face and name up there on the chat, which I totally understand. You can go ahead and send those questions in at any time. We, all, all day long, we've been getting questions. So I'm anticipating lots of questions and answers tonight. I hope, I hope the answers you've been sending questions. I'm going to do my very best to present to you a biblical response to what has to be one of the most contentious election seasons that we have ever experienced as a country, in recent memory at least. Um, you know, this is, a, this is a big one, and uh, the, the hate speech is out there, and the antagonism is out there. And I was watching the other day um, a replay on YouTube of the Obama and Romney debates. And I remember back in 2012 thinking, wow, these guys are really at each other's throats. And now you watch it today and it's like, man, they were so nice to each other. <laughs> it's like a totally different world. Um, we have devolved in our neighborliness, uh, in our civics. Uh, people want to blame Donald Trump, but sometimes I think the other side is just as bad. Uh, it is contentious. It is mind racking. It is nerve racking it is you know all that kind of stuff but here's the thing that i want to leave you with today i want to leave you with a sense of peace if i do my job as a minister of the gospel of jesus christ if i do my job as a minister as a minister of the gospel of jesus christ i will leave you with peace tonight so you're nervous i hope that you listen you're in the right place before you tune on turn on sorry before you turn on cnn before you turn on fox news before you turn on msnbc or tweet or whatever you're going to do hang tight with me for the next two hours or so all right if, if, if it gets boring i'll cut it short yeah if it keeps going and you guys keep chatting well then uh we'll be excited to uh connect with you and i see so far nobody is even chatting hello chatters Drop us a chat at youtube.com slash the deep end TV. And I want to put that back up here on the screen so that you know where it is. YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. And this is where you go to follow us on the YouTube channel. So it's a it's a it's a time in which a lot of people are stressing out. Uh, they're stressing out because they think uh, everything rides on the right guy getting into the office of, of the presidency. This is the normal human inclination, um, especially in an America that has become increasingly secular. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself with my comments tonight, but we are in a tremendously secular age 
compared comparatively to previous generations. Now there's a there's a global or geopolitical reality to that, and I want to explain it for a second. So so let me just dive in right right away. America, there's no doubt that America is far less Christian than it was uh, maybe three, four decades ago or two or four, three generations ago. There's no doubt that the share of professing Christians has declined in recent decades. There's no doubt that the share of nuns, these N-O-N-E-S people, which means no spiritual uh, or no religious affiliation has increased. In fact, I think it is the fastest growing faith community in our country. And there's a reason for that. Uh, and it's kind of a geopolitical reason. And then it's a heart of man issue. So let's talk about geopolitical. Back in the 1950s, after World War II, there were two superpowers in the world. There was communist Russia and there was the United States, the capitalist, you know, freedom loving country that we have been for so many, many decades and centuries now. And what you had is you had a clash of ideals. And many people don't realize this, but this is the geopolitical reason why we have declined spiritually and declined in our Christian heritage in this country. The, the, the reaction to atheistic communism in the 1950s and 60s was to believe in God, right? We, we as a country did not want to associate or assimilate to uh, you know, atheistic communism. So we trended toward you know, a Christian worldview. And that was a geopolitical response more than anything. Well, guess what happened in 1989? The communist regime collapsed. USSR collapsed. There was a coup. And before you know it, uh, communism was exposed for what it was, a failed system, a failed political system, failed uh, societal system. And, And so atheistic communism collapsed. Now, what happened just 12 years later? Fast forward from 1989 to 2001. What happened in 2001? We all know 9-11 happens. And guess, guess what attacks us this time? Guess what's our enemy now? Our enemy is what? It's not atheistic communism. It's jihadist Islam. And jihadist Islam is a monotheistic religion. It is based in a monothe- monotheistic worldview, which means it's one God and you should fight for this God and you should uh, you know, believe what you believe so strongly that you will take lives if necessary to to, uh, to, to, to fight for this God. Well, that gave birth in this country to what people call the new atheist movement or the radical atheist movement, the evangelical, if you will, atheist movement, which means not just believe in no God, but spread the beliefs out. They were called the new, the- new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and they traveled around the country and they talked about how God is not real because look at who we were attacked by. We were attacked by religious fundamentalists and so on and so forth. And that's what has led us in many respects to this another geopolitical response away from religion, away from organized religion, because religion poisons everything, as Christopher Hitchens says. Uh, God is not great, as I think Sam Harris said. So you know what I'm saying? We we tend to think that there is some kind of, you know, real uh, spiritual attack on Christianity in this country. And I would say that's true, but there's also a geopolitical reality that we have to accept. And so we are in a different age. We are in a different age where people believe far less often in the sovereignty of of God, the salvation message of Jesus Christ, and the fundamental principles of Christianity, which in many respects built this country. So where does that bring us to today? It brings us to this highly contested, highly contentious 
election season in which people are putting an obscene amount of hope in government because they have walked away from their hope in God. This is my thesis, okay? This is my, you welcome to disagree with me, but this is my thesis. And I believe that as a, as a society walks away from God, they, their nature abhors a vacuum. There is going to be a desire in the human heart for safety, security, peace, a sense of righteousness, a sense of self-actualization. If we don't get that from God, we will look to the next thing right below him. And what is that according to the scriptures? That is the government, okay? So you've got to realize that there is two realities right now at work to make that happen. We are intensely focused on who wins the Oval Office because as a country, we have uh, 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 way over responded to uh, rejection of organized religion because of the events of 9-11. And here we are today begging and hoping that our preferred candidate gets into the Oval Office. Is this a good place to be? I submit to you, no. I submit to you, absolutely not. I think we need to get back to faith in God. I think we need to get back to putting our trust in the one who is over all and in whom we live and have our being. Amen. That's my belief. I hope you share that with me. And if you are here tonight because you want to know uh, uh, how we should respond as Christians to government, to this election, well, you're in the right place. Okay. So viewer questions. And let's just check the chat here. Is there anybody there? Hello. Oh, there you guys are. Yes. Okay, so I see Miguel Laboy. Hola, amigo. Hola, Miguel. Good to see you guys. Can we scroll down? There's a question right above Miguel. Can you do that, Michael, or is that not possible? I'm just going to see what's up here. Is there anyone in here asking questions yet? Matthew Casanelli, one of our top deep enders. Hello, Matthew. Miss Luna, hello. Do you really think this election is more tense than the election of 1968, Richard M. Nixon, Hubert Humphrey, and George Wallace. Uh, I don't know because I didn't study that one. I got a couple of examples tonight. I got a couple of examples tonight. So let's let's see. Um, I'll give you my examples. You can tell me in the chat what you think. So tonight is going to be really uh, relaxed. Okay, I'm, I've got a lot I could say, but I'm also more interested in con conversating with you guys. So I, uh, I thank you already for the chatting. Make sure that you keep going to, uh, where did I send you? I sent you to uh, this place right here, The Deep End on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Deep End TV. Make sure that you're logged on there. If you're not logged on there, you will not be able to chat with me live. So log on there and we will get to your questions and we will have a good conversation around this election. Be not afraid, my friends. Put your hope in God. He's faithful. He loves you. He knows you. And he has you right where he wants you. And I still believe no matter who wins this election, the best is yet to come. So just a reminder, one more time, if you want to ask those questions anonymously, 508-316-9333 or ask at thedeepend.tv. I uh, got a couple of questions that came in already. I'm going to put one up on the screen here. Should we as Christians own guns? Well, this is a great question. Because obviously guns are an instrument of death in, <laughs> in reality. I mean, I know they also are an instrument of self-defense. And uh, that's why a Christian would own one, I'm assuming. Absolutely. It's for self-defense. Full disclosure, I own a gun. Uh, I'm not against it. So 
I would say yes. If you want one, you can own one. Uh, but that does not give permissions, Christians permission to murder. Uh, should we use it? I think you have every biblical right to defend your family. Um, I believe that there are uh, there is justification for defending yourself. The Israelites, ancient Israelites, were called by God to defend themselves from the attacks of their enemies. Um, I think that we have to be very, very careful about how we speak about these things because guns are a hot button issue for a lot of people and they are oftentimes uh, looked to as our saviors rather than our savior. So our savior is Jesus and our and our guns have to be way down on the list in terms of what we're putting our trust in. Uh, but I don't think there's anything wrong with hunting. I don't think there's anything wrong with sportsmanship with guns. I don't think that's a problem. And I don't have any problem with a Christian defending their family. I can't tell you this idea too, by the way, that we should just like let people attack our families because we're Christians. We should turn the other cheek. That's nonsense. Jesus was actually talking in that scripture about a Roman law. Okay. When he says, turn the other cheek, and this is, this is actually a great question for this reason. Let me get into it. Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. That's not a, uh, a, a global response for the church to every wrong against you. Okay, it's not. Uh, Paul defends himself. Paul uses the judicial system to defend himself. Um, Paul escapes uh, through, uh, you know, scheming means you know some some str- some strategies to get out of death and to get out of perilous uh occasions so i don't think that there's um anything wrong with protecting yourself by whatever means necessary so the law in first century was you turn the other cheek because a roman centurion could come to a jew at any moment slap him across the face just to insult him and jesus was saying listen show him that he actually has no power over you through that law by just turning the other cheek let him slap the other one let him let him take another shot to just say to him, look, your law doesn't mean anything to me. I mar- I march to a, a a the beat of a different drummer. What a great what a great illustration for our election season, amen. That we do not get so tensed up about this uh, result. We believe that, that there's a higher law at work and God is at work, amen. Thank you for the question. Another question came in. Here we go. Isn't it out of character? Uh, isn't it out of the character of our Lord God to turn seventy years of living in into eternal punishment forever. Isn't eternal life a gift to believers only? Okay, well, this, again, I answered this a couple of weeks ago or last week about that there are many views about eternal punishment. There is conditionalism, which believes that people are tortured for a reasonable amount of time and then their souls are destroyed. Uh, There are texts that back that up. Um, There are also texts that back up eternal conscious torment. The question itself, uh, I think the questioner, and this is, not any insult to you, but it is a common reality for people to to make less of what sin really is. Sin is an insult, an eternal insult against an eternal God. He is an eternal God. We are eternal beings. So sin is a eternal insult to God and his character and his love and his generosity and his grace. And most importantly, to the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. I don't like to come down on either eternal conscious torment or conditional torment. I don't. And this is the reason why, because there are scriptures that support both views, although I think it's more heavily supportive of eternal conscious torment, to be honest with you. And I don't want to give you an excuse for living godless because you think, well, I just endured, you know, 40 years of eternal, of of conscious torment and then it'll be over. I don't want to give you that excuse. Hell is real. Hell is damaging to your soul, to your personhood. You do not want to go there. It is eternal darkness. The, the worm dieth not. The fire is not quenched. Jesus used all these eternal terms to refer to it. And it wasn't meant for you. 
The cross was meant for you. Heaven was meant for you. Jesus, uh, Revelation says that eternal hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, not you. So you've go, if you go to hell, you went to the wrong place. You were meant to go to heaven. How do you get to heaven? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, a, that's the better answer. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, another question came in. Should Christians accept a socialist platform in the event of the Biden-Harris ticket winning tonight? Okay, right to the political conversation. I like it. Should Christians accept a socialist platform in the event of a Biden-Harris win tonight? Okay, let me, let me, um, let me say this. I don't think, <laughs> and I say this delicately, I don't think that if Biden wins, he's going to enact socialism. I do think that the people behind him want to enact some form of socialism, some moderate form of socialism. We already do have some smaller forms of socialism. I don't know if you realize that this is called Social Security. Uh, there is a debate about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I believe it's a good thing. Uh, I think we I think we do have a responsibility to take care of our agent. Those who have paid into, into the tax system for years, they have uh uh, benefit they should benefit from that um medicaid is another form of socialism where we all chip in to make sure that some pe some people can pay less for medical care uh so should christians accept the socialist platform the, the hardcore socialism you have to know about this like full-on 100 socialism has been condemned by virtually every theologian since modern times since the modern era Catholics might not even be aware of this, but three popes condemned socialism outright. Uh, Pius XII, uh, another one, uh, John Twenty-third. I'm forgetting the other one. They condemned socialism outright. It is completely incompatible with uh, Christian theology. Uh, the, the, the problem with socialism for me is it's Christianity without God. It's the, the fruits of Christianity without God. We should share. We should be generous, but socialism is generosity at the threat of the sword. And then we got to dive into what's government for is government for providing for your needs and making sure that it takes from person A to give to person B. I don't see that in the Bible. I also see in the Bible in first Thessalonians where it says, if you do not work, you do not eat. Uh, this country itself was built on something we call the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant work ethic believed that you need to Honor God with your vocation 100%, that you aren't just your own being. You are created in the image of God. You are responsible to an eternal God, and you are responsible for your family, and you should work six days a week and rest one. That's called the Protestant work ethic. Your your vocation is a gift from God. Work is not a curse. Work is a gift from God, and, and we do it to his glory. And honestly, that Protestant work, work ethic is what made this country very prosperous. We've lost it in recent generations, to be honest with you. We've lost it in recent generations. And, and, and I say this on a regular basis to our church, Waters Church up in North Attleboro. We have adopted a victim mentality. We have given up on working hard for what we want and going after what we could uh, achieve for ourselves to the glory of God. And we have fallen into what I call a continuous victim uh, mentality where somebody's wronged me. You know, it's this hierarchy of victimhood. So, so how many victim statuses can you claim? Well, I was born, uh, or, uh, I was black, or I was Hispanic, or I'm an immigrant, or I'm a woman, or now you can just say I'm, a, I'm gay or lesbian or I'm transgender. So hierarchy of victimhood and everybody's kind of trying to play this card. Not everybody, but there's a great number of people that are. And I think that's what's producing this trend towards socialism that people you know, are in this position of thinking they just deserve. And that's not true. You don't, the Christian theology is rooted in, we 
deserve the wrath of God. <laughs> we deserve the wrath of God. And it is by grace we are saved through faith, not of works so that no man can boast. God did something for us that we did not deserve. And then the very next verse is, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for us in advance, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. So I don't at all believe that socialism is compatible with Christianity. Virtually every theologian I've ever studied says the same thing. Now, if it happens in this country, and I pray that it doesn't, but if it happens in this country, you need to know that there are faithful Christians living under socialistic regimes right now. There are faithful Christians living under communist China right now. There are faithful Christians struggling and dying for Christ in communist North Korea, dictatorship North Korea, okay? God always has a church and the church must live under the confines of whatever it finds itself. And one of the great privileges of being an American, guys, is that we don't, we don't have to worry about 90% of what Christians in virtually every other country have to worry about. So that's my answer to that. If it happens, I say, well, here's what I say. Don't let it happen. <laughs> Vote for the least socialist candidate you can find because I don't find that it is compatible with Christianity. Government, in the, according to the scriptures, is not put in place to provide for us our needs. You are given gifts by God to provide for your needs and then to be generous with people who are needy. And I think that we would have a lot less call for socialism if Christians were more generous, just to be honest with you. And I think that we would have a lot less call for socialism if uh, um, our educational system would teach the truth about Western civilization. You know, there was a, there was a chant, I, I don't know if it was a recent chant with the Black Lives Matter movement or some other police brutality uh, parade or, you know, protest where they were chanting, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. The, 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 the thought being that there's this class, I took it, you, maybe you took it if you're old enough. I think I was like the last generation to take it. Western civilization, civilization studied what made the West, America and Britain and Western Europe different from the rest of the world over the course of human history. It was the Judeo-Christian values. It was, it was the underlayment of biblical values concerning work, vocation, and uh, providing for yourself and being generous with others that set the West apart from the rest of the world. And we have stopped teaching that to children. So we've stopped teaching that to our kids. So, so now they teach the kids that there's something wrong with Western civilization and all of your problems are because of Western civilization. And so we need to upend Western civilization. And, and a lot of people are saying this, Re, re, rebuild the system, like tear down the system and rebuild it from scratch. And that is alarming to me as a Christian because we, it, but it's not alarming because I know that this has been happening for generations in this, in this country. And let me just go on a little diatribe here because a full confession from me. Okay, guys. And uh, I don't want to answer every question this long, but let me just go into a little diatribe of my own personal life for the first time in my life, for the first time in my wife and I's life, all three of our kids are not in public schools. This is the first year that all three of our kids have been taken out of public schools. L let, me, let me tell you why. Because the shutdown showed my wife and I what they were teaching our children. <laughs> and we said, we've got to get them out. I I'm just being honest. I know that everybody can do this. It's hard. It's, it's expensive. I'm paying a lot of money to do this. But it was shocking. On top of that, um, again, the undermining of Western civilization and the influx of Eastern philosophy. I'll give you a short antidote about this. 
My son, Jake, seven years old at the time. This was last October. We were driving around in the car in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And I had just taken, I think I took him to the trampoline park. But anyway, he said, Dad, what's, uh, Dad, we're celebrating Diwali tomorrow. And I said, um, what? And uh, actually, it was like next Tuesday. I said, what? He said, yeah, Diwali. And I said, you're celebrating that where? He said, we're celebrating it in school. I said, you're celebrating Diwali in your public school? He said, yes. And so, you know what I did? I did what a reasonable, responsible parent should do. I called the principal. I called the principal to verify this was true. It was true. They were planning to celebrate Diwali. What is Diwali? It is a Hindu festival celebrating uh, Hindu lights and worshiping some Hindu god. And they were ready to deck out the whole little elementary school, this from my second grade kid in the Diwali theme and celebrate this pagan Hindu worship festival. So I called the principal. She said, yes. I said, you understand this is a religious festival? She said, no. I thought it was an Indian festival. I said, no, it's, it's Hindu. And by the way, not all Indians are Hindu. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just shocking to me what public school principals don't know. I had to explain to her that, Dewa that all Indians were not Hindu. There's a whole bunch of Muslim Indians. There's a whole bunch of Christian Indians. There's a whole bunch of atheist Indians. And so she said, I wasn't aware of that. Let me do my own research. I said, yeah, do your own research because I know for a fact this is a Hindu festival. So she did. She called me back. She said, you're right, Mr. Hatch. We've canceled the celebration. Thank you for your input. I said, and by the way, I'm a Christian minister. And I just had to get this in. I'm a Christian minister. And um, I, uh, I don't want you guys, if you're not going to celebrate Christian festivals, you're not allowed, I don't want you celebrating Hindu festivals or Muslim festivals. She said, I completely understand. And she was very respectful. And I was very respectful. You got you to gotta have your conversation seasoned with salt. Not short, long story short now, they canceled it. But this is what I see happening in public education now. Um, they are abandoning the benefits and the blessings that Western civilization has brought to our children. And this is why we've raised a generation of victims. We've raised a generation of kids who think that the system is broken and all their problems are because of the system and they need to re reimagine the entire system. And so we've got more problems with this coming and it's going to happen more and more frequently. And for the first time in my life, I have all three of my children out of public schools for that very reason. Anyway, that's what happened. So let's get back to your chat real quick before I go on uh, chatting here in the questions. Hello, Joanelle Wilcox. Hello, Daniel Mastrovito. Yes, Pastor Tim, do you see one candidate more in line with Christian principles? Yes, I do. Donald Trump, to be honest with you. And uh, I know there's going to be a lot of people that disagree with me about that. Um, let me let me give you my reasons. Maybe I should just jump in this into this now. I was going to save this for later, but I can get into this now. Um, I think it's clear as day that Donald Trump has been the most pro- Christian president, I think in my lifetime. Now, please hear what I said. I didn't say pro, uh, I didn't say the most Christian president. Did you, <laughs> did you hear what I said? The most pro-Christian, the most pro-Israel, the most pro-life. And those three things are big time issues for me. Uh, so pro-Israel, I believe that we need to support Israel as a nation. I believe that our national policy should be to support Israel, to stand behind them, to defend them. Uh, they are still God's biological people. I am, uh, I am not a, re a replacement theologian, which means I don't believe that church has replaced Israel. I don't believe that. I believe that the church and Israel are running right alongside, right to the end times, and God has a plan for Israel in the end times. That's what I believe. 
We have to support Israel because they are God's biological family, period, full stop. We also have to support Israel because Paul says that we were grafted in, okay? And they were cut off so that we could be grafted in. And Jesus was a Jew. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the only thing I have to say about that, really. If I, if I stop there, that's enough. I worship a Jew. That's what I worship. I follow a Jew. I believe a Jew had to die for me. So when a president is pro-Israel, I'm pro that president. Just full disclosure. Okay, that's why I said last week I had no problem, no reservation whatsoever supporting and voting for President Donald Trump uh, for the second time. Is he arrogant? Yep. Does he say bad things? Yep. Does he call people names? Yep. Uh, he's also the most vilified president I've ever seen in my lifetime, to be honest with you, the most attacked. So, you know what? I don't say he's Christian. I didn't say that. I said he's the most pro-Christian president in my lifetime, which means he's very supportive to the Christian movement. Okay, let's see. Uh, next question. Next question. Is it wrong as a Christian, Dan Robinson, is it wrong a Christian to not engage in political arguments? To not engage. Is it wrong to not engage in political arguments? Everyone seems to want to engage and argue, and people are getting angry if you don't. No, it's not wrong to not engage. Absolutely not. And I would say you don't have to engage. And as a Christian, our primary obligation is to preach the the good news through our life, through our actions and through our church and his, and his presence, faithful presence in this community. So no, it's not wrong to not engage. I, you know, there was an old virtue in this country has kind of fallen by the wayside. It was a great virtue, which was don't talk about religion and politics. Like go to work, do your job. Don't talk about religion and politics and try to get along with people. And as Christians, remember we're commanded in Romans, I think it's Romans 12. As far as it depends on you, try to live at, at peace with all men. And so if it's a contentious conversation you want to avoid it and politics is hugely contentious right now it's usually contentious for the very reasons that i shared earlier in the podcast we have moved away from trust in god and we have moved toward trust in government and so that's why everybody's putting their hope into who occupies the oval office to an obscene degree so thank you for the question dan robinson keep the questions coming i like to see them i like to see them joanne wilcox same reason why i pulled my daughter out of public school yes yeah i know i agree with you 100 percent uh, Medi Chaluli, Chanuli. Hello, Medi. Fall River Campus Pastor. Hey, Tim. Any thoughts on Tim Keller's Twitter storm last couple of days that has sparked debate? Keller discussed how Christians should approach conscious, conscience and political involvement. Okay. I sorry, Medi. I didn't follow that closely, so I don't know exactly what to say. I did see that he tweeted out Tim Keller's a pastor or former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in um, Manhattan. Uh, he's a, one of my theological heroes, by the way. Full disclosure. Love the guy. Uh, but I do know that he is a registered Democrat because he tweeted that out yesterday uh, and that he registers Democrats so that he can vote for the less crazy Democrat politician in the primary. <laughs> that's what he said. Basically, his philosophy is vote smart. So he registers a Democrat so that he can vote for the one that's less crazy. He didn't say less crazy. I say that. I'm sure that's his philosophy. <laughs> anyway. Mrs. Luna 1210, would you put your children in Catholic school if Christian school is not available? Yes. Yes, without a doubt. But I would do that because I'm a good theologian. See, there's, there's some that are not a good theologian, and you, you might want to avoid that. Um, so I can, and I've done this with my children their entire lives. Their entire lives I've done this. They'll come home with some whacked out philosophy that they were taught in public school. And I sit them down and I have the theological conversation. Now, it's not always. It's not like every day. It's like maybe once a semester. Uh, and no problem so far since they're all out of public school, by the way. Thank God. Um, but that 
is uh, your call as a as a parent. Do you do you have the capacity to kind of deprogram them from uh, Catholic theology because Catholic education is going to go full on with Catholic theology, and that is also uh, contrary to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. It is salvation by grace plus works and continued works. Fact. So you you have to just be a good theologian in that regard. You got to know the gospel. You got to be able to teach your kids the truth of what you believe as a Christian. Matthew Castanelli, how would you segue into a gospel spreading witness moment when engaged in political conversation about election and election year topics? I would segue like this. I would say, you know what I would say, Matthew, is, and this is my rule of thumb when it comes to witnessing and evangelizing on a one-on-one basis. You need to, to hear their story. You need to spend time not telling them what you believe before you find out what they believe. So, you know, you, you need to, you need to say, okay, so why do you believe that? You, so you are a pro Biden guy or you're a pro Trump guy. Well, what, what's the deal? How, how did you arrive at that conclusion? I'm, I'd be fascinated to know. And I think that, you know what, when we show people that we care about what they believe and we care about them, you're going to find that door is going to eventually open where they're going to start asking you questions. And I've had this happen to me in recent weeks. Actually, I've, I've got this guy teaching me tennis. I hope, I hope he's not watching. <laughs> But he's not a Christian. And, uh, you know, he's coming at me with all the hard uh, non-Christian questions. And I, I said it last week on the deep end. I didn't do a great job with our last conversation. First conversation went really well. Second conversation, not so much. And so I'm learning always as everybody else is. But what I did with him first is I asked him a bunch of questions. Because I really did. I want to know, what's this guy's story? Who is this guy? Uh, I, you know, and, and when I was uh, talking to him, the 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 Lord just kept saying to me, you're not here for tennis. You're not here for tennis. That that kept going through my head. And so two things about that to answer your question, find out what's their story because at some point their story is going to open up to your story. At some point you're going to find some corollaries because the human condition is the human condition. We all share the same experiences of, of hope and hurts and healing and needs and community and, you know, meaning in life all these big questions that science can't answer. So at some point it's going to arrive at your story. And I would say, do that. And then secondly, listen to the Holy spirit. And this is something that Christians have got to do. They've got to learn to tune their spirit to God's spirit, to listen to him. He will speak to you as you talk to people. And you say, well, how do you do that? First off, you got to be full of the word. You got to be in the word yourself. You got to be in prayer with God. And I'm not talking about hours a day, but you know what? It'd be good to give a good 30 minutes to the Lord every day. And to get and to get into his word and to know what he says about things, and even when you don't understand it, to keep reading through it because getting getting it in you will help you in your church experience, and you'll learn how to listen to the voice of the Lord. So that's what I would say: find out about them, listen to the Lord, let the Lord speak to you, and then at some point in that conversation, they're going to ask you, and then you get the chance to answer uh, why you hold the hope that you have. Okay, thank you for the question, Matthew. Uh, Carla Cabara. Caballeros, thank you for explaining that Trump supports Christianity, but he's not a Christian. I voted for him too, again, but cannot stand the man. <laughs> you know, a lot of women can't stand him. A lot of guys love him. Uh, Carla, I'll let you know that my wife loves him. And she probably will kill me for saying this, but she, well, maybe she won't. She's a big fan. And she was the reason why I voted for him the first time. After the um, Access Hollywood video came out in 2016, and he said that thing about women, I turned to my wife and I said, I'm not voting for him. I cannot do this. 
And she said to me, are you are you nuts? And then she went through the reasons why she was supporting him. So anyway, um, he has exceeded my expectations in terms of his policies that are pro-Christian. Now, I have a liberal Democrat friend who is all Christian. He's not pro-abortion. He's not pro-gay marriage. He's a Christian. He's a Democrat. He voted for Joe Biden. I love this man to death. He is a good friend. Also another tennis partner. Anyway, um, we've had conversations about Donald Trump's decisions. And every one that I bring up, he's like, yep, I like that one. Yep, I like that one. Yep, I like that one. <laughs> and he loves Amy Comey Barrett. Co- Amy Comey Barrett, right? Coney Barrett. He loves that justice. Uh, and I'm like, why, why aren't you voting for him? He just doesn't like him. He just doesn't like the man. Uh, and that's a tough one. And if Donald Trump loses, it's his personality. That's, that's, that's just the reason. Because I think he's done a really good job in many respects. And I think he's also been hated in many respects somewhat justified for the way he responds to people but it's hard to be president and i don't know if i'd do any better because people would tick me off after a while (laughs) how about you (laughs) anyway uh chloe and diego another big time uh deep ender fan hello chloe and diego okay what do you think of president trump holding up the bible like a prop for a photo op especially when he most likely couldn't even tell you a verse from it yeah i didn't like that moment um but i really didn't care you know people get I think they get too worked up about small things like that. I am a policy guy and I got, I'm going to tell you guys, um, I don't care about the person. (laughs) I am a policy guy. So if the policies are what I want, I will vote for the policies. By the way, you should do this too. You should do this too. Take emotion out of it. You're not voting for a friend. You're not voting for a pastor. You're not voting for a moral leader. I know people like to say this. We're not voting for a moral leader. The Democrats said you weren't voting for a moral leader when Bill Clinton was doing his stuff in the Oval Office. Now the Republicans are saying the same thing. You're not voting for a moral leader. You're voting for policy. Okay. I vote for policy. So if the policies are positive for what I care about, I'm voting for that. And I don't give a rip about the character. Here's what I like to say. It's a very simple sentiment. Character is the politician's problem policies are my problem so if he's got bad character that's his problem i'm never going to have a conversation with the guy i'm probably never going to be in his in the room with him he's never going to have any dealings with me personally so i don't care but policies matter and you say well shouldn't he be an example maybe i don't know if i'm thinking about many times i've said ever said or anyone said to me growing up be like ronald reagan (laughs) no one ever said that to me Like, hey, there's a guy you can really become like, no, they were just happy with his policies. They were happy. The economy was good. We were winning the Cold War and all that. I don't know. That's that's my belief. Character is the politician's problem. Uh, Policy is the country's problem. Vote for the policy. Ignore the character. Kathleen Carlo. Hello, Kathleen. Hello. Uh, What are your thoughts on the Catholic Church overall, and do you believe that it has played a role in the pains that people have experienced in church growing up and that it has confused who Jesus is? Yes. But I will say it with this qualifier. There are very there are scores of faithful, born-again Catholics. Scores. And I thank God for the Catholic Church in a progressively secular America. So I'm partners with sec I'm partners with Catholics on pro-life issues. I'm partners with Catholics on traditional marriage issues. I'm partners with Catholics on religious freedom issues. And where I can find agreement with someone who may disagree with me theologically, I will find agreement and work for again the policy. The policy is more important than the character or even the the um, 
the differences in doctrine. I will partner with uh, Mormons on pro-life issues. If I can get a Mormon and I to march in pro-life or, or to pay for a, a pregnancy resource clinic, I will do that every day. Uh, but I will not ever espouse Mormon theology, preach it, teach it, or agree with it, or tell people to believe it. I won't do that. Same thing with Catholicism. I do think it has caused a lot of damage, but a lot of Christian churches have caused a lot of damage. You know, I think we can all share our stories of, of hurt and pain from Christians and Christian churches, whatever the denomination. I know I have my stories. I have my scars. Christians can be terrible to each other, but there is far more good to the Christian movement historically than there is evil. And you have to take the, the, the totality of Christian history into view here and not get zeroed in on one bad experience that you have. Um, I, I think that there is something to be said for there is nothing like Christian community compared to non-Christian community, whatever the denomination is. And I think that by and large, the statistics are out there, uh, there that uh, Christian people in Christian community, regardless of the denomination, are happier, they're healthier, they have better marriages, they have closer friendships. And they just are more optimistic and positive about the world. When you believe that God is for you, it's a positive message. Uh, but yes, I, I don't agree with Catholic theology about salvation. So thank you for the question, Kathleen. Let me just see if I skipped anybody. Uh, let's see, Diana Mandeville. Honestly, I lost faith in Democrats because of their con constant attacks on Trump. I voted Trump because I believe he does care about us about the U.S. and enacted policies. I agree with it. Good job, Diana. That's what I would say. Vote for the policy, not the person. Chloe Diego, another question. Would it bother you to have a female president of the United States? No, not at all. If the policies are what I want. Uh, I am a policy voter, so I'm going to vote for the policies every day. Uh, and the woman issue for me, and let me just make sure that we're clear about something. There's two chapters in Genesis you got to pay attention to. There's the chapter one, God makes male and female in his image, okay? And then he gives them, Genesis 1, the, the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule it, and subdue it. He gives that to both man and female, male and female. Then chapter two of Genesis. It's almost like a recreation story. It talks about the creation being done almost again in a different language, but it's different. It's a different story, actually. It's a different narrative within the narrative of Genesis 1. Genesis 2 comes in and says, now there was a garden, and the garden represents where the presence of God dwelt. And the garden is represented in the temple and the tabernacle under Moses, in the temple under David, and then ultimately in Christ. Um, but what you have in Genesis 2 is a theological relationship with God. And in Genesis chapter 2, you have a man who's given the law, don't eat the tree, and then he's given a job, name the animals, and then he's given a wife, and he is to be the head of his wife under the law of God. So this is why I am a um, complementarian, not egalitarian. I don't believe that women should be pastors or theological overseers of a congregation. I believe that role has been uh, relegated only to men. And um, you're welcome to disagree with me about this, but this is how we run our church. This is what I believe scripture reveals. And it's based on that Genesis 1, Genesis 2. So the creation mandate, a woman can do anything in creation that she wants to rule, subdue, create, uh, cultivate, and, and build, including being a civil leader. Uh, but uh, the theological structure and authority structure that God has put in place in Genesis chapter 2 is relegated to the, to the male gender only. And then, of course, Paul backs this up. Jesus chose 12 disciples, 12 disciples, made them apostles. Not one of them was a female. 
Uh, there is no mention of an apostle, a female apostle, a female pastor in the New Testament at all. There are three pastoral epistles, Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. They are all written to men. In those pastoral epistles, Paul makes very clear that a pastor is to be a, the husband of one wife, a man. It is very clear in scripture. You have to really twist scripture to say that a woman should be pastor. That's my theology. You're welcome to disagree, but that's what I see the Bible revealing. Okay, thank you. Um, Matthew Castellani, let me just skip you real quick, Matthew, to uh, Thassia de Oliveira. What are your thoughts on the recent letter from Archbishop Vigano to the president, specifically the Great Reset? Thank you. I don't know what that is. If you could put some context in the chat for me, that would be great. Um, anyway, I don't have anything to say about that. So if you could just give me some context. Uh, Miss Brittany, I don't personally agree with a female president. Then don't vote for one, Miss Brittany. <laughs> you are welcome to disagree with me um, about that. But I just don't think that I don't think that Christ, I don't think that the Bible um, restricts a woman from civil authority. I don't see it. Maybe you can show me something in the scriptures that does say that, but I don't see it. Okay. Anyway, let's go on to some more questions because there are some others that came in on text. Okay, this is from a texter. How do you deal with Christians who think it is more important what happens to people after they're born than if they are killed before they are born? Actually, this one came in online, and I'll put this up on the screen if I can find it. How do you deal with Christians uh, who believe? Let me get it to. Let me get to it. Oh, there it is. Okay. There it is. How do you deal with Christians who think it's more important what happens to people after they're born than if they're killed before they're born? Christians who think it's more important what happens to people after they're born. Okay, so what do we, okay, so Christians that are pro-abortion. I think they are sorely mistaken. I think you need to show them Psalm 139. I think you need to show them Jeremiah 5. I think you need to show them, um, what is it, Ephesians or Galatians, where Paul says, God who set me apart in my mother's womb. You need to show them some scriptures. It's very clear. And if you're a Christian, you have to agree that the all scripture, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 13, uh, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for uh, 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 teaching, training, reproof, and correction so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. If you believe scripture is inspired by God, now it has to be rightly interpreted, as I did with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 concerning female and male leadership in the civil government and in the, in the theological government, uh, you have to show them scriptures. So Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah 5, before you were born, I called you and set you apart. Paul says, God set me apart in my mother's womb. I mean, this is Genesis to Revelation. God is in charge of life. God is in charge of death. I am not pro-euthanasia. God is in charge of death. God is in charge of birth. We are playing God when we take it out of his hands. And that's what I would say. So that's how I would deal with those Christians. Uh, in those situations. Okay, let's get back to the chat screen. And uh, let's go to another question that came in through text. There's different instances in the Bible where people stood up to governmental authority. At what point do you think Christians in this country should have disobeyed governmental laws? Okay, well, I got actually some stuff prepared for that. This is a great question. Thank you for sending it in. Uh, let me see if I can find my points about this. You know, Paul, Peter has a lot to say about this. Peter, our big brother, Peter. And here's what he says about government uh, and what we should do. First off, he says in 1 Peter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Now, that word elect exiles is an important word because what Peter is doing is he's talking to Christians and he's calling them elect exiles because they were physical exiles 
because they had been scattered. Look at what it says. The dispersion, that means scattered, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are five regions or five cities in Asia Minor that Claudius, Emperor Claudius, in AD 49, had sent Christians to against their will. So the Roman government, the Roman president, quote unquote, the Roman emperor sent Christians because he, they call, they, he called them troublemakers. He, he exiled them. He sent them out of their hometown. He, he, he moved them physically. And uh, he, now that would make them exiles. But what Paul says is you're not exiles by the will of man. You're elect exiles. Just that little, that little word right there is wonderful. Do you know what that little word means? That little word means that though man ha- may have done this to you, God has a purpose for it. Isn't that cool? So yeah, you are exiles, but you're elect exiles. And then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God knew this was going to happen to you. And he's got a plan for you. I love 1 Peter because 1 Peter is written to Christians in exile. And if, and if this country continues on a secular trend and we start to lose religious freedom, and we start to lose our rights as Christians, we will be more and more in love with 1 Peter. How do we suffer well as Christians faithful to the gospel? 1 Peter is the roadmap for that. And so what does first Peter say in chapter two? Check this out. In chapter two, strikingly, Peter says, be subject to the Lord's sake for to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or supreme. You know, the guy who kicked you out of the hometown and moved you to another town, be subject to him or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. And look at this. Honor the emperor. Peter, what? The guy who kicked us out of our home? But yes, honor him. Because there is no authority in place except what God has put in place. Romans chapter 13. Okay? So, you say, is there a place where we should disobey? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is uh, exemplified in the, uh, in, in, uh, the scriptural witness. Uh, let me see if I have it here. Uh, yes, I do have it much later. Hold on a second. Let me skip to... Yes, God asks us to disobey rulers when they ask us to disobey him. So yes, if your ruler asks you to disobey God, you disobey the ruler. And it might get you in prison. It might get you punished. It might get you killed. In some countries, it does get you killed. Acts 5, 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. This is the, the, the authority of the day, the, the Sanhedrin of uh, Jerusalem. This is Peter and John. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. So when government asks you to disobey God, you disobey government. This is also exemplified in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, when the midwives who feared God did not do what Pharaoh commanded them by killing the Hebrew boys, but rescued them and, and saved their lives. And God honored them and gave them families of their own. Uh, this is in Daniel, when Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to worship the idol that Nebuchadnezzar sets up, and they get thrown in the fiery furnace, and God protects them. Not everybody gets protected. Some people get killed, but they were protected. Daniel also refused to obey the edict that was, that was subversively put in place by the satraps, 120 satraps under the rule of Darius. Remember that story? And so they kind of hate Daniel, the jealous of Daniel. So they, they, they get Darius. They kind of trick Darius into making this law uh, to get, his, um, get him to uh, disobey the government by obeying God. And so he does. And, and the rule is no one is going to pray to anybody except Darius. And then Daniel prays anyway. He, in fact, the Bible says he opens the doors of his house, windows of his house so that they can see him pray. And then he's thrown into the lion's den. 
and God rescues him from there. So there's absolutely times when the government asks us to disobey God. Now, let me get into something. When that government asks us to disobey God, we must disobey the government. The shutdowns. The shutdowns. When the government oversteps its bound on telling churches not to meet, but every other place of mass gathering seems to be open, such as Home Depot and Lowe's, and I've talked about this ad nauseum on the weekend at our church, but you've got uh, planes. I've, I've been on planes a lot lately, okay? They are packed, shoulder to shoulder. American Airlines, they fill all the seats. That's acceptable, but not churches? You're on a plane for three hours. You're in a church for, seven, for, for 75 minutes. Give me a break. That's allowed, but not churches. And there is a command of scripture for us to come together as the church. And I just side with John MacArthur on this one. I think he's done a fantastic job with Grace Community Church down in uh, California. That he has disobeyed the governor and the edict of the state of California to gather his church. And I think the Lord is blessing him for it. I think the Lord has raised him up. This 75-year-old preacher that I disagree with on many matters concerning the Holy Spirit. But he and I, I would agree with him on this one that we absolutely have to disobey. At some point, it's gonna, I mean, this is nonsense. There's curfews being put in place by governors. I mean, are we kids? Are we children? What, what does a curfew do? What, what does a curfew do? You don't go out now because the governor, the governor said don't go out. Are we kids? Are we gonna wake up and realize that these governors have gone power hungry and power crazy? They're not our parents. <laughs> I could go on and on about that all day. Anyway, let me get off that. Uh, let me see checking the questions out here. Thank you for that perspective. Okay, anyway, no, no questions on the chat, so let me go on and see some questions from the text. Are these candidates chosen by the prince of this world or by God? No, they're chosen by their uh, parties, actually. And um, I would say to you, <laughs> I would just say to you, um, that we make a big deal over the moral failures of these men or women that run for office. And I, I want to say something that's going to offend you all. They represent us. <laughs> they are us. You know, Donald, Donald Trump was a celebrity. Uh, a, a um, what do you call it? Reality TV show celebrity. <laughs> I mean... That's America in a nutshell. We want to be celebrated. We want to be paid attention to. We want people to follow us, like us, you know, uh, snap us, um, tweet us, text us, whatever. <laughs> we have the candidates that represent who we are. I, I hate to say it, but it's true. And, uh, you know, it's funny how, and I this, this is one of the things that bugs me about Christians who have a problem with Donald Trump's character. I'm like, okay, well, wait a, wait a second. Are you perfect? My, my word, you have turned into a wonderful judge of character when the Bible clearly says, do not judge, lest ye be also judged. And by the way, he is not a Christian, according to the scriptures, because I think he pretty much said that he did not ever ask God for forgiveness and he's committed adultery. So it's kind of a definition of if you're not asking God for forgiveness and repenting of sin, you're not a Christian. Scripture says that we're not supposed to judge the unbelievers. That's first, that's first Corinthians chapter four. So where do we get off as Christians judging a guy who doesn't claim to be a Christian or doesn't fit the Christian category? We've kind of, it's, the, the nastiness of our politics allows us to get on our high horses and judge these people as if they're worse than us. But really, they are us. They're just, they're just more exposed to the criticism than us. Like if my life 
had to be pulled through this fine-tooth comb that is the national media and all these investigations and opposition research and all that stuff, you'd probably never vote for me. And I'd probably never vote for you. These people are put through the ringer. They are exposed for all their faults and failures. They're on television 24 hours a day. How many stupid things did you say today? What if it wasn't caught on camera? What if it was caught on somebody's cell phone camera and they just caught you saying something stupid at the wrong moment? Come on, think about this. I know, I know politics gives us an, a chance to lob stones from, from, from our backyards or our living rooms into the television set, but I think you got to give some of these people some grace. It's really hard to run for president in this country. Anyway, uh, what is your thought, Matthew Casanelli? Let's get back to chat questions. Thank you for that question, by the way. Uh, what is your thought on the topic of government and religion should be separated? Do you think that Christianity should be infused with government? I think that Christians should be faithful witnesses and image bearers in government, Matthew. I think that we uh, are not to impose um, religious rules, Christian rules on non-Christians. Uh, but we are to live with influence in the secular government. I, I do not want a church-sponsored, I mean, a, a uh, government-sponsored church, and you shouldn't either. This is what you have in pretty much every European country, uh, including England, and you don't want that. Uh, I don't want taxpayer money going to fund a particular denomination. That's exactly what happens in almost every European country. So I don't want um, state-run church. I don't want state-sponsored church. I want freedom of religion. I want freedom of religion for Christians. I want it for Catholics. I want it for Muslims. I want it for Hindus. I want it for everybody. I want freedom of no religion if somebody doesn't want to believe because I don't want to impose religious faith on someone through governmental edict. But I think that Christians have a responsibility to run for office. Absolutely. They should run for uh, school boards. They should be involved in civics. They should be involved in the civil local government, statewide government, national government. I think that even in the Obama administration, as much as his policies were, were tremendously anti-Christian in many respects, and I could go down a list, there were faithful Christians working in his administration who I knew of through uh, books and my readings, and they, they testified to their faithfulness in that, in that administration. So here's what I would do no matter who wins, especially you know if the guy you don't want to win wins. Here's what I think you should do. I think you should um, pray that faithful witnessing Christians who live out faithfully uh, before this next president or the current president, that they will be an influence upon his life and his decisions. That's, that's my, my belief about that. No for state run um, church. Okay. Let's go on text questions. Pastor Tim, I'm not a fan of the president and his behavior and attitude. What, what has been a struggle for me is having Christians tell me that my salvation is dependent on Trump. And if I don't vote for him, I'll have to explain to God why I didn't. He Trump is the Lord's anointed. I can't see what my brothers and sisters in Christ are seeing in Trump. So the answer has to lie with me. So uh, am I saved? Am I not saved? You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins period, full stop. If anyone adds any work to that, let them be anathema. In the words of Paul the Apostle, it, Galatians chapter one, if an angel from heaven comes down and preaches to you any other gospel, let him be accursed, period. Even if an angel tells you this, why? Because the word of God clarifies for us how we are saved. So no, you are not unsaved by not voting for Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, I, that's, uh, 
I'm sad that that even has to be asked, and I hope that I trust that my answer helps you. You know, I, I'm all for having, and I'm a political junkie. I'm all for having your political views, and I'm all for you supporting your candidate, but please do not put that pressure on your fellow Christians. For heaven's sakes, that's an abandonment of Scripture. He's the Lord's anointed. No, he's a governmental leader. He's a, what the Bible would call a king, a quote-unquote king. In Daniel chapter 2, it says God uh, establishes kings, replaces kings, removes kings. Uh, Proverbs says that the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it any which way he wants. So to be honest with you, in biblical vernacular, Donald Trump is a tool of God. He's a tool of God. Okay, so no. You don't have to vote for him if you don't want to, and it doesn't make you non-Christian. Okay, now another, another text question. As a Christian, oh, we're already one hour in. This is fun. Make sure you keep asking those questions in the chat. I'm like a squirrel here. I always uh, lose my place, my thoughts. Okay, uh, make sure you're asking those questions in the chat, and you can also ask your questions anonymously at 508-316-9333 or ask at thedeepend.tv. Um, let's go to that other question that was just up there. As a Christian, should we vote solely on where politicians stand on abortion? Is the issue of abortion more important than others? I think so. I believe so. Um, you know, I believe that uh, there's a lot of um, hypocrisy in the pro-choice movement. Uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy because pro-choice movement claim to say Black Lives Matter, and yet they are silent on the fact that Planned Parenthood clinics are in minority communities across this country and this is not talking points i looked this up myself uh you can look it up yourself on google maps for heaven's sakes you will see um that the founder of planned parenthood margaret sanger believed the negro population had to be uh limited she was concerned that they were growing too fast <laughs> um and she's like this hero she's a hero of the democratic party and yet they believe that black lives matter i mean there's a lot of hypocrisy there and this is not lobbing stones. This is just calling them out on the policy. Again, the policy. So if you're Black Lives Matter, if you're pro-Black Lives Matter, then you should be 100% against abortion because Black Lives, I think it is two-thirds of abortions or something astronomically high for the relative population. Blacks are aborted in the womb comparatively to whites and all other races or colors. I don't like to say races because we're all one human race. I do believe that abortion is probably the singularly most important issue in our politics right now. I just do. That and religious freedom. Religious freedom is definitely on the ballot this year. Uh, okay. Let me, uh, can we scroll up here? That was number, oh, no, you were scrolled up. Thank you, Michael. Hi, Pastor Tim. I am sad to hear that you and Cheryl decided to pull your kids from public school, though I understand I am a public school high, a public high school teacher in Mass and I'm honored to do his work. We need Christians in public school if all Christians pull out of public education who is left. I agree. I agree. It was a personal decision. I'm not saying that you have to, and that was not my intention to share that story. It was just a personal decision for us. We were fed up, to be honest with you, uh, and we were appalled. It was our particular, maybe it was just that teacher. Maybe it was just uh, that particular curriculum, but it was a decision that we had to make personally. And I would like to say to all public educators who are Christians, please faithfully live for Christ in the public education system. I, we need you there. You're 100% right. But in this context, for our family, that's what we decided to do. Uh, it was kind of a wake-up call for us. And I think that public education is, you know, um, who, what was her name? O'Hare. No. 
What was the atheist that uh, got rid of um, Madeline Murray O'Hare? There we go. Madeline Murray O'Hare fought diligently to remove any mention of God from the public school system. Prayer, Bible reading, and all these kind of things. You know, my my wife actually went to public schools in South Africa, and she was every day, and she's my age, She every day she read the Bible, and they sang a hymn, and they prayed. <laughs> and that was in the 1990s and 80s. Uh, but years ago, 1962, in America, we removed any vestige of faith and, and, and Christian tradition from the public school system, and we are reaping the benefits, to be honest with you. We have moved away from God. And you look at what has happened to the public school system, what has happened to teenagers, and what has happened to depression, suicide rates, uh, teen pregnancy, uh, the sexualization of minors, the over-sexualization of minors. Now transgenderism is being uh, becoming curriculum across the board. This is a problem. This is a problem for our culture. There are going to be long-lasting implications for generations because of this educational indoctrination. So it's a problem. And uh, I pray for you, and I believe God's best for you, and I thank God for you. Please do not think that I'm saying you are being unfaithful by being a witness there. Look, Daniel was in Nebuchadnezzar's court, but not every Jew was in Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's court. And God used Daniel in that court, and I think you're Daniel in the court right now, and please be faithful, and, and you need to draw lines where you can in the public school system where you can say and speak for your speak truth and say, no, I won't believe that, and I won't teach that. My Christian conscience tells me not to teach that. I hope you have opportunities to do that. I hope if you are given those opportunities, you do do that. That's my admonition to you. Okay, uh, let's see. Let's go to 13. Are we forcing non-Christians to accept Christian values by trying to elect a more Christian policy president? Uh, I don't think so. That's a great question, too. Are we forcing non-Christians to accept Christian values by trying to elect a more Christian policy president? When I say Christian policy, well, all right, let me break it down like this. Murder, do not murder is a policy. <laughs> it's not something that anybody runs on, right? I'm against murder. No, <laughs> but is, does that not correlate with uh, biblical values? How about not stealing? Doesn't that correlate with biblical values? So there's a lot of harmony Again, vestiges of our Christian heritage and the, um, the foundational underlayment of American democracy, which is the Bible, which is Christianity, which the facts are these 55, uh, 53 out of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were members of a Christian church. I know many of them were deists. I know many of them were not saved. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they were members of church. So Christianity had this huge influence on the founding of this nation. And I would say that the reason why this nation is great is because of that Christian influence. I know we had slavery. I know we had segregation. I'm not saying we were perfect every step of the way, but we have moved in many positive directions. We've moved in some negative directions, but we have to, as Christians, and I think this is what going back to being faithful witness in Nebuchadnezzar's court, we have to curb the moral compass of the culture. We are, we are a restraining force. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two talks about this. The restraining force that is, that is withholding, listen to this very carefully. There's a restraining force withholding the revelation of the antichrist, the lawless one, the world dictator that will appear at the end times. What is that restraining force? It is the church. It is the church. The church acts as a restraint against immoral laws and policies in a culture that lead to human destruction. Why are we pro-life? Because it's a Republican policy position? No, we are pro-life because the scripture reveals this, because the baby in the womb is a miracle of God, a gift of God, because science tells us that as early as 20 weeks now, an unborn child can feel pain. So you got religious faith, you got biblical standards, you got 
You've got uh, conscience, matters of conscience that testify all to the same reality that is a life. We have to be a curb against this unfettered philosophy of unlimited access to abortion. And then, of course, yes, we have to care for the child after these 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 critics of pro-life movements who say you only care about the unborn. You don't care about the born. That's a bunch of hooey. You find me an atheistic hospital. You find me a Muslim pregnancy resource center. You find me an educational structure that was founded in this country or in the cultural West that was founded by an atheist. It was founded by Christians. The vestiges that, that, that we value in this country, the benefits of freedom, democracy, education, healthcare, hospitals, charities, uh, orphanages. These are the byproducts of Christian belief, friend. And, we, and, and anybody who throws that at me, I get so worked up about that because I think you just don't know history. You want to say that Christians only care about the unborn and not the born. That's a bunch of garbage. Christians have been caring for the born since Christianity started. It was the Christians who in the, in the second and third plague, second and third century plagues in Rome went out in the streets and brought the sick and infirmed into their houses and often caught their plague and died with them, caring for them. It was Mother Teresa, I know, Catholic, but still going to the, uh, to the lepers in Calcutta and he- helping them and helping them die with dignity and ministering to their needs. I, I Find a hospital. Look up its story, its founding story. Christians. I just don't have any patience for people who claim that Christians only care for the unborn and not the born. We care for all those things. Okay, anyway, number uh, 14. In today's world, let me read the whole question. It's a long question, so thank you for it. In today's world, it seems that many businesses are starting to encourage diversity and inclusion trainings upon their employees on a consistent basis. Last week, I was in an hour-long diversity and inclusion discussion with people from different levels of my firm. During this discussion, we touched on many different topics, such as racism, the LGBTQ community, unconscious bias, etc. As a believer, I am 100% for diversity. And, and, being, and that being said, there were many other discussion topics that I completely disagreed with, such as topics concerning LGBTQ community. Because I'm a lower-level employee and just starting at the firm, I don't want to start up disagreeing with a bunch of people. With that being said, I want to stand bold in my faith and if asked directly how I feel about certain situations, I will confidently tell them out of love how I feel. Do you have any tips for these types of situations? Yes, I do. Read the book of Daniel. Um, The book of Daniel is our roadmap for living as exiles in Nebuchadnezzar's court. You are also in another form of Nebuchadnezzar's court. So what does Daniel do? It's very interesting, actually. Did you know that Daniel aced the the astrology course in Babylon? Do you know he was a a top 10 student in Babylonian instruction? And yet yet he was a faithful Jew and monotheistic believer in the one true God of Israel. And he was given platform and presence to speak straight into Nebuchadnezzar's life, interpret his dreams, and represent Yahweh faithfully, not just in Nebuchadnezzar's court, but in Belshazzar's court and in King Darius's court. Three successive regimes for three successive empires. Daniel stood the test of time. And yet he went through the Babylonian educational process. Now, the one stance that he takes is interesting. In Daniel chapter one, we should know the story. The one stance that he takes is on the dietary regime. They try to give him the, the fine foods and wines of Babylon. And he says, no, we just want vegetables and water. He's, and the, and the, and the, uh, the king's representative says, look, if you do this, you're going to be pale. You're going to be weak. You're going to look uh, thin and you're going to be gaunt and I'm going to get in trouble. And Daniel says, give me 10 days to test this out. And in 10 days, he looks stronger and better than all the other uh, members of the king's court. It's an interesting story. Why out of all things would Daniel resist the food, the, 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 the dietary restrictions? Well, here's why. 
because the dietary restrictions kept Israel, and this is the reason for the dietary restrictions of Leviticus chapter 14, it kept Israel isolated in community. Where do you build community? You build community around food. When you really want to get to know somebody, you got to eat with them. Well, Jews had this funky diet. They couldn't eat with anybody because they had to eat kosher. They had to, well, now it's called kosher, but they had to eat according to the Levitical law. That law was put in place to keep Israel from mingling and commingling communally wise with pagans and thus adopting their worldviews and thus adopting their philosophies and thus adopting their belief systems. And it's, here's here's the lesson for us as New Testament believers. You come together in community uh, as Christians, you eat the Lord's Supper, that's our diet today, and then you go back out as faithful witnesses to pagans and to unbelievers. Now, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, um, as a Christian, you, you don't run the company, so you're not there to impose your beliefs on their diversity and inclusion philosophies. That's their right as a private company to do whatever they want. And, you know, I'm before they, they could do whatever they want with their private company. You don't have to work there. Maybe you do have to work there because you need the money, of course. Uh, so I'll, I'll grant you that. But I would say faithfully live as a Christian witness. Do your job well. Show up early. Stay late. Ask for extra work. Do it excellently to the glory of God. And when they ask you why you do these things, you have opportunity to share witness of Christ in you. The, the, the main thing, Christian, is you don't need to preach that you're anti-LGBT, you need to preach that you love Jesus and you believe his word. I hope that helps. Uh, another question sent in from Tasia on text message. Great recent. Oh, this is complex. We sense the attacks multiplying of those who want to destroy the very basis of society, the natural family, respect for human life, love of country, freedom of education and business. Looks like a liberal collective movement heading towards socialism, belief. Is their objective will lead to more lockdown? Belief is their objective will lead to more lockdowns, vaccinations, camp confinement for dissenters. Until a few months ago, it was easy to smear conspiracy theories. Those who denounce these terrible plans, which we now see being carried out, draw down to the smallest detail. It, it was an open appeal to President Trump to save us, save the U.S. from what happened in Europe, Italy, Spain, uh, France, Spain. Gosh, I wish I could answer that. I don't know. <laughs> I'd have to really research that. I, I don't want to provide some off the uh, cuff answer to that. Thank you for the question. Seems very complex. I'll check it out. What are your thoughts on post-service services for our military members? Do you think faith-based services are critical? And I think he means critical. Do you? And so I guess the question is, should we provide services to our military members who are out of the military? Yes, absolutely. These people come back and they're damaged in many, many respects usually 100% of the time, especially if they see active warfare. As Christians, we have got to reach out to the broken. Matthew 25 is big here. I was in prison. I was in, I was in the hospital. You came to visit me. I was sick and you came and helped me. Absolutely. We should be at the forefront as Christians. And if you know of an organization that we can partner with, that the one caveat for our church is that if, you can, if it preaches the gospel, which means it's not just we don't just do the good deed, we also share the gospel is the reason why we do the good deed, we will maybe consider supporting such an organization financially or even vocationally. So let us know. We absolutely should care for those who are hurting in any way, in any respect. Okay, another question. How do you know as a Christian whether or not politics is becoming an idol in your life? Well, I think I explained that in the beginning of the podcast, but let me go back to it because I wanted to address it from a Christian perspective because I did address it from a national, secular, progressive uh, 
progressive secularization of our country perspective. So let me address this as a Christian. Politics is becoming an idol if you fall to pieces tomorrow when you find out who won and it's not and it's not your guy. If you weep and wail because your guy lost, politics is an idol. And maybe God is going to use that loss to break the idol in your life. Quick answer. (laughs) If you're watching endless news sources and uh, endlessly tweeting and Facebooking about it and then spending hours fighting on Facebook with your friends or family members. Oh, here's another one. If you've given up on family relationships or close friendships because of politics, that's an idol in your life. Just that's the fact. Anything that separates you from family is a false gospel. There's one gospel that should separate you from your family, which will inevitably separate you from some family. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no stopping that. People lose family, friends, relationships. They get disconnected from parents, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, children because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything other than that that separates you from your family, your friends is a false gospel and you need to detach. Amen. Thank you for the question. Okay, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, Back to our chat. Thank you guys for the questions on our chat. Miss Brittany asked another question. Some people referred to Trump as the current day King Cyrus thoughts. Yes. Yes. Simple. For those of you who don't know, uh, Cyrus at the end of Chronicles uh, enacts an edict. I believe it's also in Ezra. Uh, Cyrus was the king of Persia. I'm, 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 my memory is failing me now. And he enacts an edict. Is, the, uh, is it the Edict of Tolerance? I forget. Anyway, where the Jews can go back to uh, Jerusalem and build their temple. And so he's actually a pagan king that benefits the people of God. And that is exactly what I would consider Trump to be equivalent to. Yes. If you were given a chance to address the nation, what would you say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. <laughs> <laughs> that one was an easy one. Thank you. That's a great question. Uh, one of the ingredients on some, if not all, vaccines on children's vaccination, vaccine schedule are aborted fetal cells, according to the vaccine inserts. Shouldn't we be against them? Yes. I would be against that. I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. Yes. There are more black babies aborted in New York City than born. Uh, Kathleen Carlo, uh, if true, please provide. I hope that. I don't hope that's true, but if you could provide a resource that uh, proves that's true, I would love to look that up myself. If it's true, that's entirely sad and it supports what I was talking about earlier. Anyway, thank you for the questions. Uh, Diana Mandeville. Pastor, I learned when I became a Christian that the Sabbath is Saturday. It was changed in the Middle Ages to appease pagans entering the church. What is your input on this? That's not true. It was changed in the church, in in the scriptures. In the book of Acts, they come together on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20. Um, Acts chapter 27, first day of the week, they come together for prayer, breaking of bread. Uh, Jesus changes the Sabbath. Yes, he does. This is a theological construct of the old and new covenants. And I will unpack it for you very quickly. So the old covenant is the covenant of works, right? We work with God to achieve salvation. The, the Jewish covenant was obey and you are, uh, well, no, I'm sorry. That's not the covenant. The covenant of law, obey the law as my people. And they were pointing to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law. Romans chapter 10, verse 8, uh, 4, sorry. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. So the law points to Christ. So the Sabbath is part of the law. Six days you work, seventh rest. Now watch this. This is cool. Jesus, re- Jesus rises from the dead on the first day of the week. 
And from that moment, the church gathers not for worship on the last day of the week, but on the first day of the week. Why? Because we work from rest. The Jews worked to get to rest. We work from rest. We work from the finished work of Christ. They were pointing to the finished work. He is the fulfillment of their work. And we live from that. We live from that. We rest with Christ in God. This is why Hebrews chapter 4 tells us to enter into that rest. This is why we're commanded to strive to enter into that rest. Being that we do not consider our works righteousness enough to appease a holy and righteous God. All of our works are as filthy rags. So we cannot earn our salvation. It is salvation by grace through faith. You are saved out of works. So we enter into Christ and we live from his finished work. At the cross, he says, it is finished. What is he saying? He's saying the, the work that God gave me is finished for your salvation. Believe on this. Rest in this and then go do your work. So we worship on the first day as a theological preaching of the gospel, so to speak. We celebrate what God has done for us. And then from that, we launch out into our own particular endeavors all week long. It's a really cool uh, theological construct of the, uh, of the scriptures. Anyway, thank you for the question. Um, Kate, the question's coming. Looks like it's dying out. I don't know if I'm going to make it the full two hours because I'm dying to get on, <laughs> see what's going on with the, uh, with the results. But anyway, I'm so glad that you were uh, here and I'll share a couple things that I had in mind. And uh, if you keep sending the questions, we'll get to them. So thank you so much. President Abraham Lincoln said this famous word. He said, it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God. We must repent. We must, as a nation, depend on God's sovereignty. And that is a fact. And this is what is wrong with our country right now. This is why we are so hyper about this election. It is why um, secular progressives are so amped up because they can't imagine that uh, there's any hope outside of the government. But I think the wise words of Abraham Lincoln are well-spoken and timely for us here today. And so I want to give you a little bit of a lesson, a little bit of a breakdown on what I call God's two covenants. There are two covenants that God has enacted, two covenants that God has enacted. So God and man. And the first covenant is this overarching covenant of civil government. And this happens with a guy named Noah. The Bible says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 9, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the field, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered every morning. I mean, so every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply. This is the first civil law in scripture. I call this, the, co the well, I don't call it, theologians call this the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant, meaning that God establishes a covenant with Noah on the basis that he is to, oh, I lost my, hello, there we go. Lost it there. Oh, where are you? There it is. Thank you. So Noah is given this civil government 
covenant with God. Uh, do not murder. Now, this is a type of how God is going to operate throughout the world. After Noah, you see there's this table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. 70 nations are listed. 70 nations is the ideal completion. Seven times 10. Law, seven is completion. 70 nations spread abroad, spread abroad upon the earth. Then the Tower of Babel, they come together, they go up into the heavens, God confuses their language and sends them, scatters them out. And then in Genesis chapter 12, there's another covenant. And this is the covenant with Abraham. Or Abram. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 and 15. And this one is stipulated as such. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go for your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in, all, and in you, look at this, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's the families? The nations. There's other, other translations say this, the nations. So the table of nations, 70 nations that happen in Genesis chapter 10. Okay. One family is chosen to be a blessing to the entire world. This is the Abrahamic covenant. It is further stipulated in Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield and your reward and your shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me that I, for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, number the stars. And if you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So shall, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. By the way, look at this. Paul uses this phrase in the New Testament to refer to our salvation. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is, an, this is a covenant. God makes two covenants, one with Abraham, one with Noah. The civil order covenant fulfilled in Noah's offspring who created the nation, 70 nations, Genesis chapter 10. The heavenly order covenant fulfilled in Christ, the true son of who? Abraham. Who, oops, sorry. Who blesses the nations, you and I, Gentiles. This is what we live under. We live under God's two covenants. We are to be faithful witnesses of this covenant fulfilled in Christ as God's family under the civil government. And throughout the scripture, you see God's people faithfully called to live under these two covenants. What does that mean for us? In the New Testament, Paul says this, he says, rulers are not a terror to good, to do good. Con I'm sorry. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. He's talking about civil authority and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God. That's why whoever wins the election is now God's servant. An avenger of uh, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer Two purposes of government in the Bible. Number one, to restrain evil. If you do wrong, be afraid. Verse four. Number two, to encourage good. So two things that government in the scriptures is, com is, is compelled to do. Encourage us to do good and to discourage us from doing evil. Now, our political fights are based on one simple question. What is good? That's what it all comes down to. That's what we're arguing about. That's what the policies are all about. That's what all the debates are about. What is good? What is not good? Is a woman's right to choose good or is 
pro-life and making sure that every child has a chance to be born good? That's the question, right? What is good? That's why you have to go to the scriptures and you have to search the scriptures for what is good as a Christian and then live faithfully from that so that you can lead a consistently Christian faithful life and people through you, as First Peter says, can see good and they can be put to shame by your righteous behavior. Now, the problem with all of us is that we're not good. We need Christ to save us from our bad, to save us from our evil, to give us his good, to make us right with God by faith so that we can grow through the power of the Holy Spirit into representatives of Jesus Christ. And this is the point of scripture regarding government so that we learn how to live faithfully under the auspices of the civil government as Christians. This is why right now we're in a battle for the two options that lay ahead for our future. Let me explain these two options that lay ahead for our future. And they are in somewhat represented represented in this election season. There is the Christian freedom friendly choice, which I do believe is President Trump in this case. And there is the Christian freedom unfriendly choice. And I think that Joe Biden did kind of show his hand when he partnered with the Obama administration in suing little sisters of the poor in order to force them to pay for abortion drugs for their employees. These are nuns for heaven's sakes. And they want to live according to their Christian beliefs. They want to live according to their pro-life beliefs. And, and remember that wall of separation? Well, they just dumped the ACA right over that wall of separation onto Christians such as Hobby Lobby and the little sisters of the poor. I mean, it was ridiculous. And they took them to the Supreme Court it was ridiculous. And one vote in that Supreme Court, I want, you to re- I want you to think about this. One vote in that Supreme Court was the deciding factor to, to side with the Little Sisters of the Poor and provide for them, provide for the Supreme Court a precedent that will hopefully be the precedent on which future, legisl- uh, future judicial decisions are made to preserve religious liberty in this country. But that's the crossroads we are in as a country. Christian freedom-friendly choice, Christian freedom-unfriendly choice. Now listen, there's good to both of those choices. Pastor, what are you talking about? Good to, if they take away our freedom, there's good to that? Yes, I do believe there's good to that. When Christians aren't in power, or at least when they don't feel that they are in power, they tend to rely on God more. They tend to depend on him more. So let's say the Christian friendly, unfriendly choice, freedom, the Christian freedom, unfriendly choice wins. And a lot of Christians across the world believe, or across America, believe that the government is no longer on their side. Well, what are they going to do? We're going to pray more. We're going to get, we're going to get, I hope we're going to get back to church. We're going to put our faith where it should belong in the first place. As much as I want a Christian freedom, friendly choice in the office of president, there are some bad things to that as well. Such as we look too much to civil government to provide for our freedoms and our life and our empowerment. And we take our eyes off of Christ and we start to put it on the Oval Office. And politics becomes an idolatry in our lives and, and draws us ever so slightly and slowly away from the risen Christ. So yes, while there is a benefit to the Christian freedom-friendly choice, and, and that's the one I want, that's the one I want, full disclosure, that's the one I want. There's also a benefit spiritually, I think, to the church when Christian, when Christian freedom is at risk because of who's in office. I think we pray more. I think we rely on God more. I think we're hungry for him to move. You say, Pastor, is that true about Christian freedom unfriendly choice? Yes, 
There's evidence. Let me give you some deep end news. The news you choose if you could choose news. Let me give you some evidence. This was um, oh, all over the place with this stupid keynote. There we go. There's a uh, Supreme Court decision coming up. This is in Philadelphia. Philadelphia fight over faith and foster parents heads to the Supreme Court pitting religious freedom against LGBTQ rights. When we redefine the family we, and we make this a civil order, faithful Christians who work in foster care and adoption agencies are going to have to make a choice. They're going to have to make the choice to disobey the government and withhold giving children to same-sex parents, unmarried parents, single parents, if that's their conscious, conscience is telling them not to. And this is going to the Supreme Court shortly, I think, after the election. I have to say, thank God for the three conservative justices that were appointed by President Trump to make sure that these Christian organizations that are trying to put children into the families at their own expense, by the way, into the families of male and female relationships because they believe what scripture teaches about the family, that they're, they're going to, these justices hopefully are going to side with Christians and preserve their religious freedom, their freedom of conscience to say, I can, I can, I can, um, I can f- be fine with your civil partnership or whatever you want to call it, marriage, whatever you want to call it, according to your beliefs, but according to our beliefs, we believe marriage is man and woman, and we are going to run our adoption or foster agency according to those principles, and we are going to pray as Christians, hopefully, that this decision comes down in the favor of religious freedom. Otherwise, our, our, there's going to be a precedent set in the pr- Supreme Court that's going to hurt religious freedom in perpetuity. I think we're on the right road there, thank God, because of the Supreme Court justices that have recently been nominated. Here's another example of Christian freedom at threat. I mean, it's a small example, but Mississippi school forbids third grade girl from wearing Jesus loves me mask. I mean, give me a flipping break. The girl wants to wear a mask that says Jesus loves me. If it said Black Lives Matter, I guarantee you they'd have no problem. Jesus loves me. This is a problem. So now the Alliance Defending Freedom Organization, a Christian legal organization, is fighting for her. And uh, hopefully she will win this case and she will win the right to wear Jesus loves me on her mask. And this is in Mississippi. I thought Mississippi was in the Bible Belt. All the crazy things happen in the Deep South. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, this is, this is religious freedom at stake. I mean, come on. The girl wants to wear what she wants to wear. And, and this is the fact. This is where we are. This is where we might be headed. So take heart. I want to leave you with peace tonight. I want to leave you with peace regardless of the election results. Here's the piece I want to leave you, leave you with. Christians are always in exile. It's just a matter of how friendly the context remains. We are always in exile. Christians, remember, we are not home. We are traveling through. We are looking for a city who's found, who, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God Almighty. We are awaiting the heavenly city. We are awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. This is not our home. We are exiles and sojourners along with the audience of 1 Peter. And we have to remember that in the midst of our exile, God is going to use some people that we might disagree with. He's going to use some people who might be pagans in our eyes. Let me give you an example. In Jeremiah's day, there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah writes in Holy Scripture, Jeremiah 25, 9, Behold, I send for all the tribes of the north, which declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. What? <laughs> the pagan king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the arrogant, self-loving king. God says, he's my servant. I'm going to use him to accomplish my purposes and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant to bring judgment upon upon God's people because they had put too much faith 
in their own ways. That might need to happen in the church in America. It might, might not. It might in some smaller way, obviously. We're not going into exile anytime soon. But you understand what I'm saying. Daniel, again, lives faithfully before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, in his court. Daniel 1, 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. They served in his cabinet as faithful Jews before a pagan king. Daniel chapter 6 Verse 19, under King Darius, it says, Then at the break of day, the king arose, went and hasted to the lion's den. And as he came to the lion's den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the Lord, living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then, then Daniel answered the king, O king, live forever. Look at the Lord. This is a pagan king. Look at the words. O king, live forever. He's saying that to a pagan king. He served faithfully under Darius. Darius enacted the law that got Daniel in the lion's den in the first place. Daniel does not harbor any ill will. He knows that his God is sovereign over whoever is sovereign over him. He lives faithfully before Yahweh as his servant under the auspices of a pagan king. We might have to do that as Christians in this world. It's, it's weird. It's strange. It's getting more and more tense. We're going to have to figure it out. We're going to have to live faithfully according to conscience, according to the gifts and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Jesus models us. Uh, Jesus finally models this for us as well. Standing before well, actually, first off, back in his birth, remember the story of his birth in Matthew 2, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Jesus was attacked by the civil government. He was under threat of death by the civil government and an angel spared him and helped him and spoke to his parents and he got out and he fleed, fled, sorry, fled to Egypt and was spared. Angels are on our side. Amen. You might be freaking out because of the election results. Angels are on our side. They've got our back. Later, when Jesus was going to die, when it was his time to die, and God knows the time for all of us to die, it says this. He stands before Pilate. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, how? You do not have any authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered you over me over to you has a greater sin. Jesus lived faithfully before the Lord, before, before the Father, knowing that he was sovereign over whoever was sovereign over him. And this is what we must do as Christians in our day and age. My, my faith is not in the Oval Office. I'm praying for the right man to be elected, but at the end of the day, whoever gets elected, he is God's servant. Angels are on my side. God has my, the hairs of my head numbered, the days of my life numbered, and I am his child. The point is we are, to God, we are to live godly lives no matter who God sets over the affairs of man. We are to live godly lives over whoever, I'm um, sorry, no matter whoever God sets over the affairs of men. We got a great opportunity. I tweeted this out on Monday. We got a great opportunity, Christians, if we know the election results tomorrow morning, if we know them Saturday afternoon, I don't know when they're going to be. We'll see. We have a wonderful opportunity, Christians, to display that our ultimate hope is not in the Oval Office, but in the throne room of heaven. In our peace, in our prayers for whoever is elected, in our trust that God is going to use this man to accomplish his purposes, however they might be accomplished in this country, that we have peace, that God is doing that. God rules rulers. Proverbs 21.1 1. 
I've already said this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. God asks us to pray for leaders, for rulers. 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then I urge that all prayers, supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions, that we may live peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Not that we might scream and moan because our guy didn't get elected. Peaceful and quiet. Godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Moreover, God asks us to pay taxes. Pay to what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Yikes. Raise your hand if you don't like that one. (laughs) So what we're supposed to do as Christians. God asks us to pray for rulers uh, whoops, sorry. And then lastly, I already shared this. God asks us to disobey rulers when rulers disobey, ask us to disobey him. Let me, let me sum this up with, with these, these seven points of living godly in a culture that may or may not be politically affirming of our faith. You're called to love God completely. That law never changes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, you're called to grow in obedience to God. We are on the path. We are uh, the faithful is he who has begun the good work to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans chapter eight. He, uh, faithful is he who has called you and he will do it. He will give you the strength. He will give the power. He is working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Philippians chapter two. So we are called to grow in obedience to God, not to government. Number two, number three, do your work well. If you're in the public schools, work hard, teach well, challenge them when they ask you to challenge your Christian assumptions, your Christian, your Christian beliefs, but do your work well. Martin Luther was once asked by a shoemaker, what must I do to preach the gospel? Martin Luther said, make better shoes. If you're in the business world, run your business as best as you can as a Christian, bless your employees, pay them what they're worth, be respectful, be respectful, be kind exemplify a life whose hope is not in this life, but in the life to come. Number four, love your neighbor. Number five, pray for your enemy. Number six, serve the gospel. Get involved in a church that preaches the gospel. Tithe, serve. The gospel message is what changes the human heart. You want, you want America to change? Tithe, serve, support, and engage in a gospel preaching church. I have no patience for Christians who complain about the the decay of morality in this country and they don't support, they don't tithe, and they don't give, and they don't serve at a local gospel preaching church. You have no right to complain if you refuse to be part of the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ. Let's make his name known. Then number seven, when necessary, stand against unjust government demands. Those are my seven points. Those are my seven points. I leave you with that in the teaching of tonight's Deep End Election Night Special. It's been wonderful with, to be with you. Uh, do we have any more questions coming in? Let me just see here. Thank you for all the questions, by the way. This has been really fun. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I do have a question. Does that cow on your back wall have anything to do with the Abrahamic covenant from the book of Genesis? <laughs> you know your Bible. That's Genesis chapter 15, right? It was a bird, it was a heifer, and it was what else? What was the third animal? He was supposed to cut in half and put on each side, and, and uh, it was a, um, 
Oh, the word is skipping my mind right now. Severian Covenant. It's an ancient covenant wherein a, a king or an owner of a land and his subordinate would cut the animals in half. They would walk through together, holding hands, signifying that if any if we if either of us break this covenant, so shall it happen to us as these animals have been cut in half. And uh, there's a beautiful picture of Christ in that because Abraham is put to sleep after he cuts the animals in half and a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot go through the middle of those animals. The flaming torch, Jesus, the light of life, the oven, the bread of life. Jesus fulfills both ends of the covenant because he is God, he is man. He takes both terms of the covenant on and he dies because we failed to live up to his terms. Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, great question. You know your Bible. Um, uh, let's see. Brent Rathui. Hey, Brent Rathui. Thanks for watching. How dangerous is censorship and media bias? Huge problem in our country. Huge problem. Every every media outlet is pro-Democrat. I mean, if you don't see this, you're blind. I wish the media would be fair. There is such a thing as Trump derangement syndrome. <laughs> he does bring this on himself because he is who he is. He is us. And uh, they have overreacted. I was actually, the funny thing is, Brent, today I was watching a uh, press conference with Obama. And I was watching, I was like, is this the same press corps? Because they were just smiling and laughing and having a fun time. And he was throwing out jokes and they were all happy. I mean, the media is so utterly biased. It's not even funny. You need to be aware of that, Christians. Uh, and, oh, the reason why you need to be aware of that is because you need to do your own research. Like, do you research this stuff? I am a political news junkie. I am a policy junkie. I, I research these things about the Supreme Court, about the decisions of our government. I want to know how does this work and how can we pray specifically so that we can live faithfully as Christians uh, no matter what happens. Okay, another question from Olamide Alege. Alege, Alege. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. I'm sorry. Do you believe that the U.S. has a moral obligation to help other nations' problems or focus on our ours? Well, there's a problem with that, Olamide. And this is the problem. When our government gives money to another government, usually the government puts it in the back pockets of the dictators or the regimes that run the government. And they don't actually transmit the money into helpful programs that serve and feed their people. Uh, one, one of the glaring, most glaring examples is Haiti. No matter how much money we pour into Haiti, the, the, the country is absolutely corrupt in its political leadership. The people are not fed. They're not cared for. They're not given freedoms. They are not, they are not helped. So I don't think it's a moral thing to give millions and trillions or, or billions of dollars of our tax money to immoral leaders. I just don't think that's a moral thing. I think we have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Could you explain more on the different ways you and John MacArthur believe that the Holy Spirit? John MacArthur believes that the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased with the age of the apostles, so there's no um, supernatural miracles, there's no tongues, there's no interpretation of tongues, there's no prophetic gifts, there's no... Um, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, you know, the nine manifestation gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. He believes falsely and unbiblically, really, that these things stopped at the age of the apostles. There's no Bible verse that supports this, by the way. There's absolutely no Bible verse that supports this. Uh, John MacArthur actually used to run a conference, annual conference called um, the Strange Fire Conference, where basically he and all of his cessationist friends would get together and mock... Um, Charismatics and Pentecostals. And and let me be honest, I'm charismatic. I'm a Pentecostal. I know full well that there's a lot of us that deserve a good mocking. <laughs> Michael behind the screen here is laughing because he knows exactly what I'm talking about. We, we deserve a lot of mocking because we can be crazy. But, you know, the gifts of healing, the gifts of miracles, these are tremendous gifts. And they are usually at work 
tremendously at the forefront of Christian ministry. I, I would advise you to look up Francis Chan's last message on American soil and where he talks about he went to Myanmar and was literally laying hands on, and he was a disciple of John MacArthur, laying hands on people, seeing them healed, and his entire theology was blown away because he saw the gifts, the manifestation gifts of the Holy Spirit at work at the forefronts of missionary endeavors where he were bringing the gospel to unreached people groups. The gifts, the gifts legitimize the message of Jesus to unreached people groups. We see that in the book of Acts, and we still see that in uh, news and testimonies from missionaries overseas. So that's the difference between me and John MacArthur. Hi, Pastor. My question is on your thoughts of predestination. Predestination. Let's not go there tonight, Kelly. That's a big one. I'm going to skip that one. Thank you for the question, though. Asking is a nerd who enjoys creating stories to share with friends. What's imp- what is important to look for or write in Christian fiction? I know pointing to Jesus is important. What if an author wants to do so indirectly, having characters point to him like Moses, David, and others? What is important then? Can you think of anything that Christian fiction is missing? I think that there's a great amount of um, Christian uh, fiction in C.S. Lewis, obviously, and uh, J.R. Tolkien, and um, I'm not up to speed with anybody else, honestly. That's the that's the that's the uh, the limit of my knowledge with that. And you know, Chronicles of Narnia, obviously Christian based, and um, J.R. Tolkien, devout Catholic, born again Christian, uh, and he wrote those uh, fictional stories to to. Uh, they talk about this. There's a there's a there's a a great quote. It's slipping my mind where C.S. Lewis talks about that in in fiction we draw people into the the mystery of the gospel, and when they meet the and and then when they hear the gospel, it's no longer a myth. The myth becomes real. The fiction becomes nonfiction, and uh, there's something to these fictional stories that resonate with our hearts because God has set eternity in our hearts. And so I'm all for Christian fiction that points to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Mrs. Luna 1210. I understand that we should be preparing ourselves at all time for Jesus return. But do you honestly believe that it will happen in our lifetime? As the Bible says, no one knows the hour. There has been so many things, even worse, that have happened in the past where people probably thought it was the end of the world. Then Spanish flu, civil war, slavery, the Holocaust, Great Depression. Yeah, I agree with you, Miss Luna. And I would say that I have no right to say is not or is going to happen in my lifetime because I do not know the day or the hour. But I do know that as I preached on this past weekend, the days of Noah are definitely upon us. Wars and rumors and wars. The birth pains are definitely upon us. This is clear as day. And we need to be ready. The point of the return of Christ is not to hypothesize when it could happen. The point is to be ready when, should it happen? So is my spiritual life developing or is my spiritual life declining that's really the question we are to be growing in our love for jesus christ every single day that's that's my prayer for you uh that's my hope for you and that's why i think we talk about the return of jesus christ okay let's go back to the chat because we're almost done it's been wonderful being with you guys uh any questions here it's been wonderful having you host deep end election night special thank you matthew Casanelli. thank you matthew Big Deep Ender fan. I see your comments every week. God bless you. Diana Mandeville. Pastor, can you send me scriptures for Sunday Sabbath? You answered so fast. Can you just rewind the video and watch it? <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> That's a lot of work. I believe I referenced uh, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 27. They, are, they talk about the first day of the week. They gather for prayer and the breaking of bread. Uh, there's also a reference to it in 2 Corinthians 8, I think, when Paul is talking about the Macedonian churches on the first day of the week. You know, when you gather together, you set aside 
money for the gift uh, that he was bringing to Jerusalem. Um, so anyway, there's not really... Rel- uh, oh, Hebrews chapter 4 is one of the verses that I referenced there for that conversation. Tony Rice, do you think we should get involved with other countries' problems even though we haven't resolved ours? Again, I'm a big um, non-interventionist. I, I agree with our first president, President George Washington, who says stay out of international affairs. Another reason for supporting President Trump is that he has been so peaceful. He has been the, the most peace-loving president I've ever seen. He hasn't gotten us into one single foreign entanglement using our young men and women as, as blood offerings for oil or for international interventionism. I'm so sick of us policing the world. We need to take care of our own problems. I, that's my belief. That's my political policy belief, and that's, that's where I come down on that. Thank you for that question, Tony Rice. I do believe we've got to get our own house in order as a, as a country. And again, I think that, you know, when we give money to these, these dictators overseas and in other countries, it, it never goes to the people, and we've got to watch out for that. Okay, guys, it has been fantastic. It is 8.55. I am dying to turn on the television. You probably are, too. In fact, maybe you've already turned me off and you're already on the television. So I'm going to go watch the television. I'm going to go watch the television. It has been an absolute delight to be with you. Hey, we'll do something like this again, maybe, later on in Season 4. Uh, we will come back with The Life of David. Unfortunately, not next week, but two weeks from now. So Life of David, Part 7 of Season 4, two weeks from tonight. I'm glad you joined us. Do me a favor, if you will. Make sure that you are following us on all of our social media platforms. Uh, Twitter, DeepNTV. Uh, Instagram and Periscope, the DeepNTV. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Sla- uh, that's forward slash the DeepNTV. Like us, follow us, subscribe, hit the notification bell. Make sure you are always aware of when we are live. And I ask you one more time, make sure you subscribe at youtube.com slash TheDeepNTV. That's the channel we want you to go to. That's where we want you to chat. That's where we want you to get the notifications that we're live because we want to go more and more into the Deep End YouTube channel. It has been an absolute delight being with you guys tonight. God bless you. May President Trump win. <laughs> and, oh, don't forget to drop us some cash if you can. Support the, support the Deep End at the Cash App. Uh, dollar sign the deep end TV. If you can do that, that can help us help us pay for all the stuff that we've already paid for with stuff money that we kind of have. Anyway, <laughs> I butchered that moment. Give to the deep end, support us. God bless you. Pray for our country, and no matter what the results are, live faithfully as a Christian. Jesus is coming. The best is yet to come. See you in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.